We stand before our God today united in our love for each other and in our love for Him. I once heard it said that before the sermon, there are a series of three or four, in our case today, maybe five sermons that are preached. Already today we have done good things in service to our God by being able to sing these good songs that remind us of the fact that Hosanna in the highest and that we are redeemed in the name of our Savior. We are here today to serve our God, to be together, to worship Him, and I appreciate you being here to encourage me, and I hope that in some way that I can encourage you this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 18, where our good brother read from us a couple of days, a couple of moments ago, in Matthew chapter 18. See, the weekend just blends so quickly, it just kind of, you forget, is it days or is it moments? It has been a busy weekend, as Gerald said, and it has been a good weekend. I referenced last night a comment that had been made in a sermon years ago that stuck with me by an older preacher when he said to the younger people, wear yourself out doing good and doing right. And so if you are tired today, some of you are getting ready to release your children for the next few days. And by the way, for those of you that are heading off in that direction, and there's a few of you who are here today, it's, it's one of two extremes when it comes to parents. Either it's, oh, my baby is leaving, or yes, my baby is leaving for the week. So we'll let you determine whether or not you are in one of those two camps. But I want to talk seriously this morning about Matthew chapter 18, particularly verses 15 through 17, in a sermon that I've entitled, Bridging the Falls. This is a serious subject, and I chose this particular sermon for a couple of reasons. It is a serious subject that I think needs to be taught everywhere. And I'm convinced with good preaching that you have from David that you are already familiar with this text in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. But I've traveled a fair amount and have preached in a number of places and have talked with a lot of preachers and have conversed with a lot of elders to know that sometimes in churches there are troubles. I don't know if there are troubles here. I know this is not a perfect congregation. I know that you have your struggles, that you have your challenges because this is a church that, like others, is made up of people. And people provide us sometimes with great blessings and sometimes with great challenges. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if, he, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I'm convinced that you're already familiar with that particular text. But what I want to do this morning is to do four things. I want us to address four major subjects for those of you that are taking notes. And many of you are, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that this is a congregation of people that not only take notes, but you, you pay attention. You, 
you actually listen to what the preacher is saying. And so David has trained you well, and I am so happy for that, that you are so serious. And you have conversations about the scriptures that we engage in. But I want us to do a number of things. I want us to, first of all, note that there is a divine way of dealing with sin that has to be respected. This is not advice from Jesus. This is a command from Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18. Secondly, I want us to make some meaningful application for how we can handle our differences that sometimes transpire when you have interpersonal relationships. Thirdly, I want us to acknowledge, based on passages like Romans chapter 12, that we are to be different from the world in the way that we conduct ourselves. And certainly the way that we handle our differences with one another should make us stand out from the world. And finally, I would argue that having peaceful relationships makes for better, more productive congregations. I want to start with two very simple initial observations regarding this text. Observation number one is that I believe there is danger regarding this text. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes when we only read verses and we don't read the context of those verses, we lose sight of the bigger picture of what Jesus was intending. And I think that's one of the cases here. It's an example here that Jesus here wants us to get the broader message, which is why I asked our brother to read verses 10 through 14, which we'll briefly talk about in just a moment. The other danger that I think that we sometimes see in this text is we look at this as being a mechanical checklist of the things that we do when someone is in sin or when we have a difference with someone else. We just check the box. I talk to him, I talk to someone else, and I go talk to the church. Or I go talk to the elders in the case where you have elders. And so the idea of that is we've got to be careful that that doesn't become so methodical in the way that we deal with sin and that we deal with differences with one another, but rather that it has to be from the heart. The second observation is really a question, and that is, why do we struggle with this text? Because I, I, I struggle with it, and the reason that I struggle with it from time to time is because this is in many ways the opposite of the way the world suggests that we operate. Rather than going to a person and saying, this is the problem that I have, or here's the issue that is at hand, uh, I go to everybody else and tell everybody else the problem, and then hope it gets solved. More about that in just a few moments. The other thing that I think is important for us to acknowledge is that confrontation, and I put that in quotes for a later purpose when we finish our study, is uncomfortable. Nobody enjoys going to someone else and saying, Brother, are you okay? Because I'm concerned that you might be in sin. That is not a pleasurable thing for a member of the church to do. That's not pleasurable for a preacher to do, whether it be publicly or whether it be privately. That is not an easy thing to do even for elders who have the responsibility of protecting the flock and shepherding the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. I believe that it's very easy for us to only see this as mechanical and not important from the heart. So that being the case, what is the broader message? If I'm making the argument that the context here matters so very much, then what is the context? And what's the broader message? What is it that we must appreciate that happens before and after the text itself? Well, we are going to very quickly go through chapter 18. 
Because we could spend a lot of time on chapter 18 and really delve into the text. But let's spend just three to five minutes on looking at the context here. Number one, a childlike mentality is a Christ-like mentality. So if I were to do a sermon just on chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, this would be the kind of thing that I would delve into and really kind of get into. Verses 1 through 5 is where Jesus takes the little child and said, Surely I'm telling you, unless you be converted as a little children, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be humble like a child. And he impresses everyone because they were asking that question in kind of a uh, impetuous attitude of who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I would argue that there is something to be said for the innocence of a child because that's typically what we point out with this particular statement that Jesus is making here. But I would also make the argument that this is not limited to the innocence of a child. But rather that it also includes forgiveness. Because one of the things that is true about children, and this church is richly blessed with children, and never take that for granted. And by the way, uh, children crying uh, is not something that bothers preachers. We appreciate that you bring your children and that you sometimes struggle with them. Now if you are an adult and you're crying today, then you're not allowed to do that. That's not allowed today. Uh, but we, we appreciate those of you that work hard with your children and your grandchildren to get them to pay attention and take notes or to, to see what's going on and to behave themselves. But one of the things about children is that they can be fighting with one another head to head and then five minutes later they're best friends again. That's the way that they operate. That's the way that they do things because they are so akin to forgiving one another. And let me also suggest that this childlike mentality means not holding grudges. And to borrow from what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, we as Christians sometimes need to grow up, grow up to be the kinds of men and women that God has asked us to be. But there's a second thing that is here in the context, and that is in verses 6 through 9, where Jesus is teaching that my comfort is less important than overall peace and harmony. In short, Christianity is putting others before self. So in verse 6, for example, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And he goes on to say, there is anything that keeps you from faithful service to God, get rid of it. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes than to be cast into the hell fire. I say all that because nothing is more important than the salvation of others. And Paul was the one who really understood this quite well. He was the person who says, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek, to someone who uh, ate pork, I ate pork with him. And you know, it reminds me of a story of a preacher who was working over in the uh, Eastern Europe years ago. And he said that after a Bible study that he had had with a group of individuals, that he was invited over and uh, for, for lunch, and they brought out what looked like a casserole dish. And in the casserole dish was what looked like jello with little bits in it. He thought, well, maybe it's fruit inside of it or something like that. 
turns out that they were little pieces of fat that were sprinkled throughout all of this gelatin-like material. And the man next to him who was translating said, Oh, do you not understand what this means? And the man said, Yeah, it means I'm going to die. <laughs> do you understand what this means? He says, No. He says, This is an honor. This is like a prized dish that this woman has gone to great lengths to make. Now, some of you have been very kind to me over the last few days and have been feeding me. And I suppose that there's a risk that at lunch today there may be gelatin with fat in it. I sure hope not because I'm not sure that I have the gumption that that preacher had. Because I asked him, I said, what did you do? He says, I ate it. And I said, well, why did you eat it? I already knew the answer. He says, because I didn't want to offend him. Because here I am making inroads with these people and having success with these people and teaching the gospel. And I don't want my comfort level or what my intestines are able to take. I don't want that to stand in the way of my faithful execution of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I appreciated that mentality so very much. There's a third thing that is in verses 10 through 14 where our brother read for us a few moments ago. And that is we must desire and act for peace. If there is a sinner, we must try to help. The 90 and 9, we leave them behind and go get the 1. That's, of course, the, very, the great parable of the lost sheep here in Matthew chapter 18 or in Luke chapter 15. Furthermore, if there's a problem, we must try to resolve it. Write down Matthew 5.23 if you want to go back and read that on your own time. But this is where Jesus, in essence, says, if you've got a problem with someone before you go to worship, you deal with the problem so that you can focus yourself on worship. Leave your altar there and go reconcile yourself to the brother with whom you have some difference. And then fourthly, we don't have the time to read verses 21 through 35, but the failure to forgive is the failure to be like God. Friday evening, I talked about that one of the things that I've really tried to work at in my preaching and in my personal life is the idea of being like God, trying to be godly, trying to be God-like. When you read this text, you often think about the person seeking forgiveness. But I want you to also read this text from time to time, maybe read it a second time through, and think about it from the perspective of the person granting forgiveness. Because sometimes receiving forgiveness is challenging. But let's be honest and frank, sometimes giving forgiveness is also a challenge. Remember that Psalm 86, one of my favorite psalms, says that God, who is ready to forgive. I have a sermon on forgiveness, I've probably a number of them. But one of the points that I make is that we cannot, as Christians, be reluctant in our forgiving attitudes. We instead need to be proactive and wanting to forgive. And I think sometimes, for whatever reason, there's that part of us where Satan is talking, saying, hold that grudge, hold it against them. We can't be doing that. We want to forgive people. So, about these three verses, verses 15 through 17, they're straightforward. If you have a problem, go to the person. If the person doesn't listen... Go and take a witness or two with you. If that doesn't work, go to the church. If they don't listen to the church, let them be worse to you than an unbeliever or a hypocrite or a tax collector. I would argue that Jesus here is talking to a very important audience. 
He's talking with his followers, and he's addressing what it is to talk to a fellow brother in Christ. The fact is, is brethren relationships come with challenges. Now, I would preach this sermon if I knew this church was falling apart. I would preach this sermon if I knew this church was the closest thing to perfection that God ever asked. Because I believe this is very important for us to acknowledge. But let me suggest to you three things. One, Jesus teaches that differences must start as a private matter. Now, we all understand that. But we do not apply it. When I say we, I mean people of the world. I mean human beings. Because sometimes what we do when there is a difference that we have with someone, when there is sin involved, rather than asking that person, can you study with me? Can I study with you? We go to someone else and say, brother so-and-so is in sin. Brother so-and-so may not understand he's in sin. But you are going to someone else telling that person is in sin. How is that person going to be aided? Jesus says, if there is sin that exists between you and your brother, go and tell him the fault and deal with it then. From various, for various reasons, this is indeed the opposite of what we do as human logic. The idea is that we want to provide strength to the brother... And that's the goal that Jesus puts forth. Let me say one more thing on this before we move to a second observation about the text. And that is, if we fail in this, which is a very simple thing, but I've seen Christians fail in this. And as a result, the church is torn apart. As a result, people's lives are shattered. As a result, people's reputations are tainted. So if we fail in this... We risk not only violating scripture, but we risk doing serious damage to others, serious damage to the church, and serious damage to ourselves. Let me share, we, share with you the story of a preacher one time who the, a younger man came to him one day and said, I need to tell you about something that I've done wrong. And he said, sure, go ahead and tell me. He says, I'm really bad about talking about others. I'm really bad about not going to people and getting the story straight from them. And consequently, I think I've been gossiping. I think I've been backbiting. I think I've been hurting people. And I want to know what is it going to take for me to be forgiven of that. And the man said, as the preacher was talking to him, well, like any sin, you can be forgiven. You need to repent of that, of course. You need to pray for forgiveness. God will forgive you, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, that's great, that's one of his waiting now. There's one thing I want you to know, though, about this sin of gossip and of backbiting and of tailbearing. He says, get in the car with me. So they got in the car and they drove about ten minutes up to a high point in the city. And the man went to his trunk, the preacher went to his trunk and took out a pillow. And it just happened to be a feather pillow. And he also took out a knife. The man thought, I thought you were going to forgive me. Now you're going to kill me. <laughs> he said, no. He says, but I want to show you something. And the preacher starts taking that knife to the pillow. Jab, 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 jab. Feathers start spilling out. And there was a light breeze that day from the south. And the feathers start spreading all over the valley underneath. And the preacher man said, now what I want you to do is go imagine picking up all those feathers. And the man said, that would be impossible to do preacher man said, that's what your gossip has done. 
it is spread out to where now you can't get it back. You know, James 3 talks about the power of our tongue as being both an unruly poison, but also this opportunity to do great good. We need to use it for good purposes. And so I would caution you to always remember the feather pillow story. Jesus says, sometimes when you go to someone with a sin or with an issue that needs to be addressed, they don't listen. They don't change. They ignore you. And when that happens, a witness is needed. Now this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 19, for example, where the Bible says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the testimony is established. The word that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is the idea of a careful witness. Have you ever stopped to think here in verse 16 where he says, If you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of the witnesses every word may be established. Have you ever thought about why God asks us to take a witness to talk with this particular person? Is it to entrap them? Is it to bait them? Is it to hook them in some way? Well, I would argue that the goal is not to trap or to embarrass or to win the debate. We've got to be very careful about that. When someone is in sin, we've got to be the kinds of people that don't want to play gotcha with them. We want to save them and help them get back to the appropriate level of spirituality. The goal instead is to win a brother and to strengthen relationships. And let me also note that Jesus has put in the idea of a second or a third witness so that everyone is protected and their reputation is protected. That way you've got the mouths of two or three individuals who can testify to what was said. I've met with individuals before in the absence of elders in small churches when they are at each other's throats, and it ought to be that Christians aren't like that, but sometimes we get that way. And I said, you know what, I'll be there, but I want someone else there as well. Because I want there to be a couple of people to be witnesses to what we're going to be talking about. Because it is so important to make sure that the truth is the truth. Thirdly, Jesus then teaches in verse 17 that if step two fails... The issue is to be taken to the church. But before we get to that, remember, as a reminder, as a review, that if steps one or two are successful, the church is never involved. So if you have a problem with a Christian, and you go to that Christian, and you address the problem, and you succeed in resolving the issue, no one needs to know about it. I said on Friday evening that just because you know something doesn't mean that you have to say something. I remember my mom one time was on the phone serving as an elder's wife for a number of years. And I just innocently asked her who was on the phone. And she said, someone. <laughs> I said, well, why are you being so secretive? She said, because you don't need to know. I said, well, well, explain that to me. I was a little bit younger at the time. And she says, there are certain things... <laughs> Uh, yes, I was younger at one point. I, so. <laughs> there are certain things that I'll take to my grave where people have confided in me, confessed to me wrong that they have done. And that impressed me so much, not because it was my mother, 
but because it was a right spiritual attitude. After all, once an issue has been resolved, it's resolved. So if you resolve the problem privately, you don't need to go to the local preacher or to one of the pastors or to a deacon or to a friend and say, by the way, we've resolved it now, but we had this argument last week. What's the point? There is no point in that. All you're going to do is taint the reputation of the person with whom you had the difference and maybe make yourself look bad in the process. But if no one is listening, if the person is not responding, and you've taken the witnesses, you go to the church, what is the goal of this step? The goal is quite simple. To do all that you can to convince your brother or your sister while also protecting the church. But here's something that I hadn't thought about until... Uh, months ago where I was studying this particular text and I thought that's really interesting to think about it from this perspective that this also protects a brother from impulsive behavior because most of us are not going to stand up before the church or go before four shepherds and say by the way I have something against someone because I can guarantee you that your four shepherds are going to say the same thing that Jesus was saying here in essence when they say what happened when you talked with him one on one that's what they're going to ask. Am I right? I get four yeses. That's good. So, again, once the problem is resolved, it's resolved. I want to make a very quick note before we close with some takeaways. And that is to fulfill this passage and to successfully bridge our faults, we should be very cautious to do a couple of things. Based on what we've learned already. Number one is to remember that we are to forgive and act like children while not being childish. God isn't asking us to be childish. But based on Matthew 18 verses 3, 4, and 5, we are to be like children. Willing to forgive, willing to move on, willing to let bygones be bygones. Secondly, we need to acknowledge that our ease or comfort is always less important than peace and harmony. I didn't get my way. Well, sometimes you don't get your way in a local church. Sometimes you have to submit to the will of your brothers and sisters. Thirdly, we want peace and we will work for peace, taking action to resolve whatever the challenge is and to never let it fester. I've known of people, and I'll talk about this here in just a second as we close out, who were members of a local church that they wouldn't talk to each other. They would avoid each other. And I thought to myself, something's not right. I wrote an article a few years ago about this, and one of the points I made is, is it going to be that we get to heaven? And God says, okay, you're in room 235 and you're in room 236. And you find out that in room 236 is the sister with whom you have a great difference. And you say, God, can I get a different room? I mean, that sounds so silly, but I wonder, what are people going to do that can't get along on this earth in a church where we are supposed to be one, all united? How are we going to do that in heaven? And then... We need to be willing to forgive and move forward as God has demonstrated. So I want to close with this. There are five applications or five takeaways that I think are important for us. Number one, for those who struggle to engage brethren with difficulties, need to remember that conversations don't have to be confrontations. 
Uh, I was talking with one person, I'll leave him nameless, uh, in this church. But he obviously has a gift for having conversations and not being confrontational. And that is good that you have that. That is good that you have that ability. And it's something that the rest of us should aspire to. Secondly, we as Christians are not mind readers. If you have a concern with a brother or a sister, don't expect him to know it unless you go and tell him. I remember ten years ago, I had preached a sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was. But apparently I said something that bothered a particular member. And about three weeks later, someone came to me and made reference to the point that I had made or maybe something that I misspoke or whatever. I do make mistakes from time to time. And he said, you know that Brother Smith is upset with you, right, over that comment that you made three weeks ago? I said, no, I don't know that. He says, you don't? I said, no. He says, well, everybody else knows. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, I'm smart. I mean, I am, and I'm intelligent. I, I'm a, I've got 98.6 degrees. That's how smart I am. <laughs> but I'm not smart enough to read your mind. So if I say something in a sermon or in a Bible class that rubs you the wrong way or maybe you think, I don't think that was exactly correct, Brother Payne. I want you to come to me and tell me that. That I can say, hmm, thank you for sharing that with me. That's probably going to be my response. I'm fairly easygoing and I'm not confrontational. Most of the time, I'll probably say, thanks for sharing that with me. I hadn't thought about that before, and I'll give that some thought going forward. The thing about this is true in any church, but is especially true with a church that is wanting to grow and to evangelize a community of 300 plus thousand people. That when you have infighting in a church, it will impact your ability to outreach. There is no way that we can be focused on teaching others and setting the right example when we are busy fighting with ourselves. It is impossible to do that. And I think that's important to acknowledge. Fourthly, we have to be sure that we remember that our purpose is an example that we're setting for others. We set an example for others. I'm reminded of two preachers uh, in a different state elsewhere in the Union. So it's, you got a 1 out of 49 chance of getting it right. I'll leave it that ambiguous, who they would not talk to each other. They would not be in the same room with each other. And again, I thought to myself, something's not right with that picture. We can have our differences. We can have our differences of opinions. And we can even say, you know what? I really don't care for that person's style. I really don't care for the way that person talks. Maybe he's a little bit abrasive or maybe he, or he's a little bit too passive. That's fine. But to say, I'm not going to be in the room with that person, that's not Christian behavior. And that was from preachers of the gospel. Members of the Lord's Church. And fifthly and finally, it is never, ever, 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 ever acceptable for Christians to have such differences with one another that we are rude to one another or mean to one another. And again, I have known, I, I, I'm hoping that you'll be able to say, all 160 of you, I hope you'll all be able to say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in a sermon. But I've known of Christians who have been mean to each other, who have been rude to each other, who will refuse to speak to each other, 
who when they walk into the auditorium and they see someone on the left side, they'll walk to the right side because they don't want to have anything to do with that brother or sister. Let that never be the case at Northfield Boulevard. Let it never be the case that we have that kind of animosity among brothers and sisters in Christ. The fact is, is this is a difficult topic for us because it's requiring us to do some difficult things. But it's important that we get it right. And I hope that this is a sermon that will be helpful to you, both individually in dealing with differences that you have with others, and maybe as a congregation, that things can work better going forward when you have those differences. If you are not a Christian, we've already prayed this morning that if there's one here who's not been baptized, that you would make the choice today to confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized to have your sins washed away. We would love that opportunity to help you. If you are here as a child of God and you are not living correctly, maybe there is something that you've done in your communication style that has been against the pattern that Jesus has outlined here in Matthew chapter 18. Maybe you've been guilty of the kind of gossip that I talked about and you need to repent of that and you want to ask for prayers going forward. We would welcome the opportunity to help you. If we can strengthen you in any way, let us.